regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Cindy Housen, the Chief Data Strategy Officer at Tarspot. Cindy is an analytics and business intelligence expert with more than 20 years of experience and a flair for bridging business needs with technology. Cindy was previously the Vice President in Data and Analytics at Gartner, where she was the lead author of the Analytics and BI Magic Quadrant. Additionally, she led the Data and Analytics Maturity Model, as well as research initiatives in Data and AI for Good, NLP and BI Search, and Augmented Analytics. Prior to this, she was the founder of BI Scorecard, a contributor to Information Week, and the author of several books, including Successful Business Intelligence and SAP Business Objects BI 4.0. She has an MBA from Rice University and a BA from the University of Maryland. So Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Great to be here. Fabulous. So I want to start our conversation by sort of discussing your college experience. Uh, I believe you were an aspiring writer and you majored in English with a sociology minor at the University of Maryland uh, back in the mid-80s. So can you share briefly about your time during undergrad and what were some of your favorite you know, writing costs taken at Maryland? Yeah, so this was a long time ago and was an aspiring writer, majored in English, minored in sociology, but was always really good at math. My favorite classes would be reading literature or writing literature, whether it was a creative writing short story or using writing for persuasion. Was there any reason like were you interested in writing, you know, growing up? Well, I mean, I, I always liked English and I loved math and, but I didn't love science and I can look back and say, I didn't have a lot of great science teachers. In fact, my physics teacher usually slept through class. He didn't show up. He'd show up the last 10 minutes of class in high school. So a teacher said to me, well, if you don't like science, there really isn't a lot for you to do with your math skills. So the other thing I was really good at was English and writing. And I think it was getting some awards for some of my writing. You just pursue what you're good at. I didn't think at that point in time too much about, well, can I make any money with this? Can I get a job with this? So majored in English in college. Maybe we can touch about this a little bit later on, but I'm just curious, do you think the ability to write that you hone back in college, does that help throughout the arc of your career as you reflect back on Tuna? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think back if I had known then what I know now about technology and about math and data and analytics, would I have chosen a different path? Do I regret it? <laughs> and I still remember one of my girlfriends in high school who was great at science. I think she went on to Virginia Tech into engineering. 
And I remember she was taking a class in basic and I was like, what the heck is basic? What are you doing with that? But I think because I had that strong foundation of communication skills Mm -hmm. combined with the analytical, I was able to first off teach myself much of my early technical learnings was just reading books, sitting on a train, reading books, commuting. And then I think much of applying data and analytics, we're saying that the data scientists need more data storytelling skills. Even the great economist, James Kahneman talks about how nobody cares about the numbers. Nobody cares about the data. It's the story that you tie to the data to compel somebody to understand, to take an action. So I actually think communication skills plus the analytical skills is just a winning combination. And I don't regret the circuitous route I've had to this space in data and analytics. Thank you for sharing that valuable insight. So let's dig deeper into your career and how you navigate that combination of communication and analytical skill. After college, you moved to Zurich for a business system specialist role at Dow Chemical. Um, and I believe in the first couple of years there, you have developed a reporting system and networking tools for a variety of business units. First of all, like how did you come across this opportunity right up college? And second of all, like what were some of the challenges you encountered coming from a non-technical educational background in this kind of job? And I think, again, I did have one job with a consulting company in the U.S. before I moved to Switzerland. I was the Lotus 123 macro queen and put together a project tracking database in DBase 3. I don't even remember what happened to that company, who acquired them, what happened to that technology. So at Dow, this was, it was really a headhunter who had an open requisition in a business unit. So I did not work for IT when I worked for Dow Chemical. It was really a visionary leader in this one business unit performance products who believed in the value of technology. Now, keep in mind, James, you probably can't imagine a past when people did not have personal computers. I think there were really only a handful executives in this business unit that had a personal computer. So the person who hired me, Dick Hoyer, he had his own computer. The other VP had his own computer, but nobody else did. They would write telexes instead of emails. And yet these leaders, Dick and Fernand Kaufman, they would come through with edicts saying, all right, everybody should have a computer and nobody's writing telexes anymore. I want everyone doing their own emails. And some of the troops would riot (laughs) or Dick would ask me a business question. What are the plant capacities? Can I pull this data out of the mainframe? And that's how I kind of evolved into tech. Yeah, thank you for sharing that experience. Yeah, and even like that move from the US to another country is definitely a big change for you as well, right? Yes, huge, huge culture shock. Fabulous. In the latter half of your tenure with Dow Chemical, you specialize in BI technologies and you lead a variety of design implementation for different reporting projects for Dow's client. What do you recall about the state of BI tools and their adoption level in the enterprise? during the mid-90s? So during the mid-90s, this category was just emerging. There were no standards. There was no education. I remember going to one conference, the OLAP report had just come out. Nigel Penzi 
was uh, the author and Richard Kreefman. And so I would go to that conference to try to figure out what to do. We did do a call with Gartner at that time. Now I can now call this person, friend, colleague, Howard Dresner. And we're trying to decide, do we go with SAP? Do we go with this French startup, privately held business objects at the time? Cognos, a Canadian company was privately held at the time. And our actual decision-making process was we would have a two-year time horizon and then somebody else, a bigger company, SAP or Oracle was what we were thinking, would probably have a better answer than what were these two startups at the time. So (laughs) these two startups went on to become leaders in the industry, both by market share and according to the Gartner Magic Quadrants that later came out over time. I mean, it took about 10 years then for there to be industry consolidation in the 2007 and 2008 timeframe when then IBM acquired Cognos, Oracle acquired Hyperion, SAP acquired business objects. And that's when really BI was not just some departmental desktop tool. Then it really became the concern of the CIO. I'm just curious, what is like the main catalyst that sparked that interest in BI during that time? I guess considering yeah. the fact that yeah, technology is still in, in a very early stage in the mid-90s, right? I mean, there's always been data, but where did you get it from? And initially we would get it from mainframe systems and it was hard to do. Our product Dow had great master data ahead of its time. And I sometimes wonder, was that the engineering that is in the DNA of a chemical company? So we had great, good, clean product master data But we were implementing SAP and the regional decision support systems that we had would be going dark or we we would need to rewire them. Windows desktop computing, client server computing was just coming onto market and these new tools enabled that. So we knew that we needed to have a better solution when we implemented SAP at the time. We knew the DSS mainframe systems would die so this is where business intelligence was really coming onto market and we needed to provide a solution. Yeah, thanks for providing that anecdote and yeah. what made it happen. You spent like close to a decade at Dark Chemical, I believe. And in the late 90s, you decided to uh, pursue an MBA from the Johns Business School at Rice University with a focus on um, information system and marketing. And, you know, when I was doing research on your profile, I believe that your MBA thesis was about how the internet could reshape the first generation BI tools. Uh, well, first of all, like what motivated you to pursue an MBA at this time? And secondly, can, can you unpack some of the key patterns for pieces? Yes. So James, you researched my background well. <laughs> so I wanted to go back to school because my undergraduate degree was, I worked three jobs to put myself through college. I did not have the typical college experience. So I felt like I got a degree, but not an education. And I recognized that I had holes in my education that I wanted to go back and fill. At Dow, people would be asking me to design a business balance sheet reporting system. And I'm like, what the heck is a business balance sheet? And so I felt like I knew enough about the technology. I had educated myself about the technology, but I needed to better understand business. 
And I also had a lot to learn about power and politics. I believed naively that at that point in time, the best person will always get the job and that people will behave logically and do the right thing for a, a company or for the greater good. And I needed to learn more about how power and politics comes into play in decision-making. The other reason that I wanted to go back to school is because as a new working mother, I was commuting from Houston to Freeport along the Gulf Coast. And so I was working part-time, but three days a week, I really didn't see my daughter. I would leave before she woke up and get back in the evening and she'd be asleep. And the, the job then was not challenging or fulfilling. And so when you make that choice between working or not working or what type of work you do, it better be worth the time away from my family. And the job at Dow uh, at that time was not. So felt like, well, I can't take time off because you can't do that in tech. That will kill your career. <laughs> Maybe going back to school is a way both to upskill, but also explain the gap in my resume nuts, right? I thought working on my master's would be easier than working. Kind of a crazy decision that paid off. The second part of the question is just about a bit about your MBA thesis. So maybe you can share some details about that. Yes. So Amazon had just come out as an online bookstore. So picture this is 1997, 1998. I graduated from Rice in 1999. Mm -hmm. And people were still trying to figure out what is this internet thing? How do you make money on the internet? There was not a lot of buying on the internet. It was more, the internet was about having an online presence, a marketing front even. And business intelligence was all desktop client server solutions. With the internet really being able to access at that time, a report, dashboards did not exist, but a report from a browser would mean that I wouldn't have to install software on everyone's desktop. So I felt like this could be a way to really democratize data or business intelligence because the technical barriers to deployment had been removed. That's a, that's a great point. So the main argument is that, you know, the internet is be able to democratize adoption of VI tools, right? And you yeah. mentioned that example, Amazon, was there any other, you know, I guess the internet enabled tools or companies during that time that really gained a lot of interest and momentum that you pay attention to? Yeah, they, but they were only just being re-architected. So MicroStrategy had just come out with MicroStrategy Web. They were early. Brio, which later was acquired by Hyperion, mm. and that product has been discontinued, interactive reporting. I think there was another one, but I forget. I'm not sure it still exists at this point in time. So some of the BI vendors were thinking about how to re-architect their products. And I actually went to, so there was a conference by what was then a newly formed organization, the Data Warehousing Institute. And as part of the research for this independent study project, I actually went to that TDWI conference. And I do remember sitting there thinking, wow, I actually really know a lot about this space. And I bet you I could probably teach one of these courses. Mm -hmm. And so I formed a relationship with then the director of education 
Wayne Eckerson. And he said, why don't we start with writing a few articles? And so I wrote about how Microsoft was entering this space and Hyperion, and they were very well received. And I later went on to teach for them. Awesome. Yeah. And we would definitely talk about like your experience teaching at the Data Warehousing Institute a little bit later in our conversation. But yeah, thanks for sharing the context and how how you like get, get involved and become more interested. Is that intersection between internet technologies and BI tools, right? And you mentioned a little bit about like having a daughter, you know, when, when you start out your MBA. And in fact, you started your MBA when your daughter was about a year old, and then your son was born near the end of your first year. So how did you balance academic study and parenthood? Yes. <laughs> well, my son was a surprise. So it, it, it went something like this. I gave notice at Dow and said, I'm resigning and I'm going to go back to school. And then I think a couple months later, yeah, I learned I was pregnant. I was like, oh, maybe I should have kept working. That would have been easier. But um, we looked at the calendar and I said to my husband, don't worry, like I'm still going to enroll in the program because the baby is due during spring break. And so it'll be easy. And of course, things never go quite as planned. I think he was actually born during finals. And it was very unusual. My professors were brilliant because they said, we'll take the final from home. We'll get somebody to proxy. They were really, really good. My classmates were phenomenal as well because a lot of the projects are team projects. So earlier on, I took on more of the work and they were great about working with me. I was really just out of pocket for a couple of weeks. I did not do an internship that summer. Normally that would have been what was expected of an MBA student, but I was also one of the older ones having already worked for eight years. Many of the others had only been working maybe three to five years. So my time management skills, my ruthless prioritization was already really honed working at Dow. So I think that's like a very great part that I want to dig deep on because like, I think at this part, like you balance between like very heavy study and then parenthood. And you already mentioned about time management and doing the most important thing, right? Just kind of want to paint a picture of how do you cultivate that work ethic, right? Let's say for the listeners who have so many things going on at this point, like what could be your piece of advice to become a better managing their time and prioritizing different projects? Yeah. So you had two things in there, James, the work ethic and the time management. So the work ethic, my father was really a workaholic, incredibly hardworking, an overachieving perfectionist. I've actually tried to dial some of that back. And I talk about pursuing excellence rather than perfection. But then it also is about time management. So there would be blocks in the day where I'm like, it's time for my children. It's mommy time. This was hard for some of my fellow students. If we were working on a team project and we agreed, this is the deadline. I'm like, guess what guys, we said the deadline is eight o'clock. Now, just because you can pull an all nighter doesn't mean I can, I have other responsibilities. And so that was a learning in terms of how to work asynchronously. And I actually find in the pandemic, everyone is learning this now, how to work asynchronously. But I would be very strict about what my core study and working hours were and really time boxing it. And it's the best I can do in the time I have. And then I have to switch off 
because mm-hmm. a perfectionist will never let go. You, you can always make it better. You can keep going, 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 but then you miss the deadline mm-hmm. or you cut into family time. I think that time boxing is, you know, projects, basically putting blocks in the calendar. And when you execute certain things, it's very important, especially like right now, you know, I feel like remote work kind of give us an illusion. We have a lot of freedom, right? But without like that rigorous scheduling that work on, you're not going to get things done. So I think like some of the recommendations or tips that you provided are very relevant. And this is where I do think like that personal commitment, you get that from people who really appreciate the flexibility and trust. And I had that both in school, but also when I joined Deloitte, I, a lot, some of my best working hours would be eight to 10 at night or eight to 11 at night when the house was quiet, everyone's gone to bed, I've put the kids to bed. But if I stopped at three or something like that, it's just changing when you work. For sure. And yeah, as we transitioned into talking about your role at Deloitte, so after finishing the MBA, you, you spent kind of the next two years as a manager at Deloitte, building BI and analytics practice in the Houston area. What was your proudest accomplishment at Deloitte? My proudest accomplishment was being the first working mother in that particular group in Houston. Deloitte was known for being good for working mothers, but that particular group was not. The other thing I would say Because keep in mind, this is Y2K. So that was the main concern for a lot of the consulting projects. And they hired me and said, you know, we want to launch this BI and analytics or data warehousing practice. We didn't even know what we wanted to call it. And being able to really solution and sell some of the first projects with just fabulous customers. And I stay in touch with some of them at Shell, at Men's Warehouse, Christus Health, just Heinz Properties, just great customers in the Houston area. For the younger listeners who are not familiar with Y2K, can you explain that period? Yes, I forget. Not everyone knows what that is, but we thought all the computers would stop working in Y2K because everything was designed really for two digits. So if the year is 1999, just 99, what happens when you go to zero, zero? So really experts were predicting just a lot of failures, system-wide failures, And so many organizations were trying to upgrade their operational transactional ERP systems ahead of the year 2000. I see. Thanks for sharing that context. Now, after Deloitte, for the next 13 years, you founded and ran BI Scorecard, which advised clients on BI and analytics tool selections via rigorous evaluation criteria. What was the motivation behind starting an independent analyst firm you know, the second part of the question is that how do you find potential clients who might be interested in your service? Yeah. So why did I start this? I was impatient with how long it was taking to get this practice off the ground with Deloitte in Houston. And my husband and I decided to take a job opportunity that would require us to move. And I said, you know, I think I'll just do some freelance work. I've always over-indexed on making sure my work is impactful and not just taking the security of a job. And that was when I launched BI Scorecard. Started not only just evaluating BI tools, it was being a consultant. I had a few clients, small physicians practice group in Michigan, helping them implement a data and analytics or reporting solution. 
this is when I started writing more for TDWI and teaching for them full time. So how I found the clients was usually through all my writing, writing through information week, writing for TDWI. Again, one of my other first clients that I was really proud of was the Washington Post. They read an article in a TDWI flashpoint and said, you know, I think you can help us. Can you come do a consulting project for us? And writing was my main marketing mechanism. Yeah, totally agree. Instead of you looking at clients, about it, they come in about You know, this is a pretty long period from like early 2000 to 2014. So obviously there's a lot of up and downs, you know, as technology changed throughout this whole period. But I'm just curious, throughout those 13 years or so running BI Scorecard, what were some of the high and the lows that you can recall? Yeah, so the highs are always some of the first. So BI Scorecard started as consulting and teaching. I can still tell you when I launched the website as a subscription service, that first phone call from the first client, I remember who that is. I'm not allowed to say who that is. And it's like, wow, I never even spoke to them before. And they just paid by credit card online. (laughs) And then they kept subscribing, which was interesting because I always envisioned people would just buy that at a point in time, the way the renewals work, why they kept coming back was interesting to me. I remember launching the website, remember the first subscription client, and then also some of the first, let's say, pioneering research notes. So one that I did jointly with Mike Ferguson from Intelligent Business Strategies in the UK was on cloud and how cloud, who was using it and how would it disrupt the data and analytics market, who was ready for it? Were enterprises ready or was it mainly SMB? So that must have been 10 years ago now. And just look, cloud is now mainstream. So some of these things are the things that most stand out to me. You already mentioned about teaching at the Data Warehousing Institute. And right when I look at the, the, the website, the, the goal of the school is to educate business leaders on the proper deployment of data warehousing strategy and technologies. Can you share maybe some details about what type of audience that took your class and, you know, set of materials that you intend to cover in those classes? Yeah. So evaluating BI tools and the BI bake-off and later the dashboard bake-off, which I did bake-offs now, I forget if it was 10 or 15 years, a long time. That was one of the most popular classes Also, measuring success is one that I continue to advise clients on. And how do you do that? That was a specific class. That class actually evolved out of one of the books I wrote, Successful Business Intelligence, Secrets to Unlocking the Value of BI and Big Data. And even now, even though we've been doing data and analytics in the current form for more than 20 years, Chief data officers and business leaders still struggle to articulate the business value of data and analytics. So that was a very popular class, selling your data warehouse and BI program, which is really about marketing it and understanding user requirements was another popular class as well. Thanks for sharing those great insights and also be sure to include the book Successful BI that you mentioned in the show notes. So, you know, listeners can check it out and maybe learn more about some of these uh, different techniques to explore BI for maximum value. So in 2015, after close to like 15 years of being independent, right, you became the vice president in 
data and analytics at Gartner. Why did you decide to move back to the corporate world after being independent for such a long period? I needed a team. The pace of change had accelerated. If I think when I started BI Scorecard, vendors were releasing new software products on average every three years. In 2014, most of them had moved to at least yearly releases and some four times a year. And there were more and more players. When I started, I think I was tracking four or five vendors. At the end of 2014, I think I was tracking 12 vendors in depth. And there were probably another 12 that were wanting to brief me, wanting me to look at their products. And I just needed a team. I had tried different models of working with other independent analysts to scale my work, but I just felt like between the pace of change, the amount of work I was leaving on the table, I wanted to join a team. And why Gartner versus some of the other analyst firms? My North Star remains serving customers for business value. And Gartner had some of the best customers of all the analyst firms. There were some other analysts that I enjoyed working with, but I felt like the depth of the research and the customers it would give me access to was very compelling. Gartner also, as part of the interview process, so this was not a quick decision. I think I was investigating alternatives for probably six, nine months, maybe, And I wasn't sure I wanted to give up the freedom. I actually was making more money doing BI scorecard. And I'm like, I don't know, can I be a good corporate citizen? Can I take orders from a different boss? But I just loved that team. Rita Salam, Kurt Schlegel, Bill Hostman, who has since retired, was just such a good team. And I think it was that collaborative environment, but then one of the hooks was also they were about to come out with a new research note type, the critical capabilities, which is really, it's BI scorecard. It's a side-by-side comparison of products. It's not, it takes the magic out of the magic quadrant. It's just products. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing the reason for that transition. It sounds like a lot of the work you do at Gartner are kind of an evolution of what you already did with the scorecard and, you know, the team, the leadership at Gartner help amplify the work you already done, right? Definitely. And so at Gartner, you were the lead author of the Magic Quadrant for analytics and BI platforms, which categorized this platform into the four quadrants, leaders, challengers, visionaries, and niche players based on a variety of evaluation criteria. Can you share sort of the end-to-end process of creating these annual Magic Quadrants? So I can share with you what Gartner publicly shares and what I would share in an inquiry call Mm -hmm. and some of their processes have changed since I left. So keep that in mind, but there are these two axes, ability to execute and completeness of vision. People like to assign their own definition to these things. So I think readers have to be careful how to interpret these things. And it continues to bother me now from a totally different perspective, the vendor perspective, at how data or dots, I should say, get manipulated when people assign their own definitions. But basically, there's really a review process where you look at customer feedback based on customer experience, user enablement, business benefits, quality of operations, product functionality. So we would do a detailed RFI 
look at videos. When I was there, we did hands-on testing of the software. That's a requirement for me because I just don't believe in demos until I've tried something. Gartner has since stopped that as part of the evaluation process. So looking at product capabilities and then completeness of vision is really, it's both about the marketing strategy, the sales strategy, but then also the product roadmaps of the vendors. Yeah, it sounds like ability to execute is sort of the engineering R&D work and then completeness of vision is like sort of the go-to-market aspect, if I'm correct. That's part of it, but I wouldn't say, no, it's not just the engineering and the R&D because it has to also be about customers getting value from the product capabilities. And so now how does Gartner measure that? They use crowdsourcing, peer insights, reviews, for example, to form that opinion as well as other data points. And this much quadrants definitely has been, I think every year kind of do this and it's always been serving us as a great benchmark for vendors, for developers and for execs to you know, evaluate the products and, and even buy products if needed. So alongside the magic quadrant, you, know, you brought up this concept of critical capabilities a couple of moments ago in our chat. This is essentially a comparative analysis that scores competing products or services against a set of critical differentiators identified by Gartner. So could you mind sort of explaining how these critical capabilities and the magic quadrants complement each other? Yeah, so the critical capabilities feeds the magic quadrant. So product capabilities is one element of the ability to execute in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. So really the critical capabilities, you would say, is just a deeper analysis of the product capabilities. Up to about four years being at Gartner, in 2019, you joined TouchSpot as a Chief Strategy Officer. And in this role, you have TouchSpot customers and products to understand how to leverage data analytics and AI for digital transformation with all the politics and culture change that goes with it. You know, while researching Hapra Profile for this conversation, I came across the blog post that you written that explained why you decided to, to join Hotspot. In particular, you identify Hotspot's secret ingredient to be the culture described as uh, selfless excellence by the fathers. So can you elaborate on how this culture manifests itself in the day-to-day operation at Hotspot? Yeah, so the culture is one of selfless excellence where you put others or the team And that includes, by extension, the customer ahead of oneself. So this is where (laughs) this fits my work style. I often say it's not about me. It's about trying to help customers innovate. And somebody recently asked me, how can I stand in a room of maybe in tech? It's all powerful, often men. And I'll be telling them their strategy is not right or something like that. I'm like, well, it's not about me. It's about trying to help them move their company forward or their data strategy forward. So I don't get upset having to be the bearer of bad news. I see that as my job. Internally, when we look at selfless excellence, some of the dynamics that I see is I might see a customer success architect or engineer having a question or a struggle with a client in the US and it's somebody in Australia helping brainstorm. Now they're not comped on that. They're not evaluated on that. And it's just helping the team because we come together as a team. We celebrate these things. We have an internal Slack channel where you can call out an act of selfless excellence from anyone in the world, any level in the organization. 
people will vote then on an additional award, additional recognition. But we say it also means no politics. It doesn't matter what function, what level you're at in an organization. It's coming together to succeed. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. As we in the topic of culture, I came across like a variety of you know talks and, and videos that you gave about how to cultivate this data-driven culture in most of the big enterprises. There are a couple of points that you brought up. It was pretty interesting. I think one of them is identify relevance. You came up with this acronym called WIIFM. WIFM. Yeah, yeah WIFM. So, <laughs> What's in it for me? So can you unpack that a little bit and then maybe best to illustrate that with like an example and an anecdote of how that looks like in practice? Yeah, yeah I'm going to push back on you. Imagine you're a teacher. What do teachers really care about? I think two main things. The first one is the success of the student. What are the information that they learn? And the second part is probably like improve their teaching ability. Yes. Am I like conveying the knowledge that I have in a digestible manner? So that the yeah. student can absorb it. Great. So if you think, if you tell a teacher to become data-driven or, hey, here's this new BI tool that's going to give you data, they don't care. They don't care. Their WIFM is how can I make my student, Johnny, Tyrone, Susie, whichever the student is, how can I help them learn better? Or are there early warning signals that, Tyrone, who had had perfect attendance, now is consistently missing school on a Monday or getting into trouble. Why is this? Or, you know, Susie is getting into fights now or something like this. Data will tell them will be an early warning indicator, absenteeism, declining test scores. And so understanding what motivates the person that you're trying to become data-driven is what I call with them. What's in it for me? So they care about the students and they care about how to become better teachers. So even looking at one teacher comparing why, if I take the same student, why are they learning better with this one style versus another? So using data to learn and to drive performance improvements is the other part of it. The culture when data is used as a first response to punish, only to punish, not to learn, that's when people will manipulate the data and make it lie. And that is where a culture that values learning, transparency, and an ability to confront the brutal facts are key ingredients to having a data-driven culture. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That really emphasized the power of incentives, right? You understand, try to step into your customer's shoes and understand the incentives, which is highly important. And I think this you know, illustrate the point that we mentioned earlier in the interview and that mix between the analytical mindset, which is the insight from the data and the communication skill, right? How do you tell the story to the data to identify the most relevant part that matched the incentive to the buyers? So just a thought that came to my mind when, when hearing about your description. Yeah, so some people are naturally analytical and they understand how data can be applied to these business problems or even, you know, public sector problems. For others, it's really about understanding their intrinsic motivation and aligning the incentives. Fabulous. So let's discuss about TouchSpot as a company and as, as a product in more detail. So just from my research, looking at the company website, it seems like TouchSpot has such a 
variety of product offerings, right? Search IQ to create insights, Spot IQ to get AI-driven insights, Hotspot Cloud as an enterprise product. You also have a mobile product, a consumer experience for enterprise cloud data, Hotspot Embrace to connect the data with the cloud, and then uh, even an option called Hotspot Everywhere to monetize data products. So maybe can you like a brief tour of all this solution and uh, a couple of the specific use cases for Hotspot customers? Yeah, so the main thing, our mission at ThoughtSpot is to create a fact-driven world. We believe that a fact-driven world is a better world. You can use facts to better navigate working capital in a pandemic for a company that's really just trying to keep its operations running without laying people off. Or it can be used maybe to reveal more about diversity and inclusion and equity and showing the differences in pay gaps or in hiring trends, things like this. The way to get more people to be fact-driven using data, so human plus data, human plus machine, is to really make sure that we have removed the technical barriers to getting to that data. And so ThoughtSpot pioneered using search as a way to ask questions of your data without having to write SQL, without having to do point and click. So it's a combination of search and natural language processing that lets the non-analyst interrogate their data. Does that make sense? I suppose that all the product support that overarching. Yes. Now AI is infused in everything. So just like when Google, you start to type something, there's a type ahead and the Google algorithms are telling you, you know, more popular search terms or even autocorrect in your spelling or what have you. This is also part of the AI that's infused in ThoughtSpot. So ranking your type ahead, telling you trending content that others have created So surfacing that and using the social graph to tell you maybe who in my particular team is creating the best content. This is how AI informs all of the insights and the content generation. So at its heart is, let's say, the search. That's the core differentiator. But initially when ThoughtSpot was first launched and founded, it was really search to create new insights with ThoughtSpot One, which was released in December, 2020. Now we also have the capability to use search to explore existing content. So whether you're finding a pin board or an insight that a colleague made or to create a new insight, you start with just one interface. That's ThoughtSpot One. In this role, you know, your title is Chief Data Strategy Officer. So just out of curiosity, like what are the functional department that you collaborate and interact with on a, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I work across the company with the different functions. It's kind of three main parts. The one part is thought leadership. So doing podcasts like this with you, James, or writing articles, talking at events, things like this. The second part is working with our top customers And this will be having, whether it's one-on-one strategy sessions, they'll say, Cindy, let me bounce some ideas off of you. 
or Cindy, we know that we have low data literacy. How do we improve this? How do we get to data fluency? Or we're having culture change issues. What are the best ways going forward? So, and moving to cloud is a hot topic as well right now. So that's working with our customers. And then the third aspect is working with the product teams, looking at product mockups, saying what the design and features look like. Are we moving in the right direction? Are we positioning it correctly? And where do we need to innovate? Are there particular partners that we should double down with or partners where we should back off because they're less relevant going forward? Yeah, that, that sounds super exciting. It's like a very multifaceted role when you're like working more internally with the product team and then, you know, engaging in thought leadership content with, with the potential customers. So yeah. It is. Uh, yeah. You, you have a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Perfect. Regarding touchpad position in the analytics and BI ecosystem, you wrote this uh, very interesting article last year called A New Era in Analytics and BI. In that article, you look at the three generations of BI tools. So the first gen BI tools like Cognos and Business Objects, which we discussed a bit earlier the uh, visual bay discovery to things like Tableau and Click, and then now uh, what we call augmented analytics. So besides Touchspot, right, what are some of the other BI 3.0 tools that you are most excited about at this point? Well, ThoughtSpot represents the augmented analytics, the best in augmented analytics, and Gartner continues to say that. So I am most excited about search. Have I seen imitators on the marketplace, but not imitators that are doing this in the cloud with no data movement? So if I look at our partner ecosystem, our ability to work with large-scale data in Snowflake, for example, or Google BigQuery or Databricks or Starburst Data, Presto, Trino is what they're calling it now, the commercial version. I mean, no data movement, Azure, uh, I, I should also mention, no data movement search on that at a granular level, there is not a close imitator. If I look, I think Microsoft is doing some exciting things in Power BI, but they require the data largely to be cached within a Power BI in memory cube or they'll do direct query in SQL Azure, but not with good performance. Or if somebody's getting good performance, I want to talk to you because I'm not hearing that when I talk to customers. And I do still work with our customers on how to position these different tools relative to one another within a complex portfolio. So I look more not at what's interesting or exciting from competitors, although I do still watch what's going on with competitors. I look across the ecosystem and how exciting the work we're doing with our partners. It's not one plus one is two. It's like one plus one is 10. So some of these network effects, when we get this deep integration, it's really incredibly impactful. So I look at the work that we do with data robot. So data robot, data science platform, surfacing insights then, or complicated model surfacing the results within ThoughtSpot. And then the data is all live against Snowflake is just huge. I think this acquisition, so probably... <laughs> the most compelling company that very few people had heard of, Sequel, 
but the play on words a little bit, not sequel, seek well. And being able to truly turn an insight into an action using collaborative tools, whether it's Google Sheets or Slack and writing back to an application, whether it's your marketing campaign automation. I mean, I think that closed looped insight to action has just been an idea for 20 years that nobody's really executed well on. And this is where the cloud and the ecosystem enables this and low code, low code, no code, I think is, is key to that. Yeah, that was really enjoy hearing about your perspective from looking at this from a ecosystem and partners, right? I think like George Bernard Gardner, having that holistic overview was a great life-forcing function to attribute perspective. Yes and no. Yes and no. There is an interesting challenge, and I'll be curious how Gartner evolves with this. But at Gartner, you were very siloed. I was very siloed. You get a chance to loosely collaborate across the different segments. So the, there's the BI and analytics team, there's the data science team, there's the database management team, there's the data integration team. But look, taking the view from an ecosystem approach and really how to integrate and what does this mean? I think Gartner's going to have to reorganize a little bit their research. An ecosystem approach, you have to know enough about all of these components and how they fit together. Yeah. And then you mentioned about, you know, this integration, right? Like we partner with these different tools and you did a couple of show uh, mentioned about this recent integration between Tosspot and Snowflake, right? In general, like I say, what advice would you give for other BI tools company who want to be a, a good player in the ecosystem? So open interoperability and cloud native are the key things. Gone are the days of proprietary closed systems or proprietary and closed is a short runway. That part of you can lend this up to the next question. So recently you um, authored this ebook by Tosspot that presents the six top chance and prediction for data analytics and AI in 2021. So yeah, can you maybe briefly recap some of these trends for the listeners? Yeah, so every year I write a top trends note, but I think what's more important is I also say what to do about them. And it's kind of what should your New Year's resolutions be as whether it's a data and analytics leader or a BI professional in the space. So some of the top trends are fight replaces flight or fear. I think 2020 was a lot about reacting Whack-a-mole is, is a word that one customer used 2021. It's about being much more strategic. And then also customer experience analytics really takes center stage. I think a lot of organizations, they look at customer, but silo data in customers. So this is really about customer 360. You know, when in a digital world, churn, it's so much easier for customers to switch. And so really taking care of your customers best in service, anticipating their needs, designing products and services that they are most likely to want and stay with you are key. I love external data and data sharing is something I'm super excited about. Technologies like blockchain and data sharing in the Snowflake cloud 
allow this. The concept of data marketplaces has been around for a while, but again, it's been hard to do that in an on-premises world. So I like a quote from one customer that this really new data sharing in the cloud, it's the end of FTP as we know it. That's great. People change management becomes a core CDO responsibility. This is where we keep throwing tech out there, but we don't pay attention to the people impact adequately. And then maybe a contentious one, James, you'll have to let me know about this. Data science loses its luster and sex appeal. And then that data exposes the wide gap in equity, but on an optimistic note, it empowers people to really drive change. So what do you think about those? Does anyone grab you or anyone you, you <laughs> passionately disagree with? No, we would definitely talk about the last one on, uh, I suppose, inequity in a couple of moments in one of my questions. Your part about data science, lots of sex appeal. I think people are understanding right now, right? Like 80% of the work is data cleaning. Pretty much everyone agree with that. So the importance of getting good data, cleaning, cleaning data, and things like that uh, become more and more of a common standard practice. Academics who just like trade model, not going to survive in the industry anymore. Right. When doing research on your profile, you mentioned that I think data analysis is the newest <laughs> sexist job of, of the next decade, right? And then that kind of emphasizes the importance of actually getting good data for your workflow and, and, and things like that. So um, I could totally agree with you on, on that point. One point that I want to kind of dig a bit deeper on is the second one, which is customer experience analytics to extend the stage. And um, I believe you were quite vocal about this concept of consumerization of uh, enterprise analytics, right? What advice do you give for companies who want to adopt that mindset and what is like the specific strategy that they can take to make that like a daily practice? Yeah, a couple things. So with anything, I always say, start small, start with your highest pain point or your biggest opportunity. And so maybe if you think about how many, let's say, well, you know what, let's take a timely one. This is happening in CPG right now, where visibility into consumer behavior will be a challenge because Google is removing cookies, Apple is increasing the privacy settings. So for B2C advertisers, it's hard. They don't know what their customers are doing. They don't know how to personalize messages to them. And so getting to these granular insights, who are their customers when there might be a distributor in the middle they have to both think of new products and new ways of engaging and new types of data. So it's taking that customer data and really making it first party data. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, like it might be something like creating recipes, ranchology, if you're into Hidden Valley Ranch, is an interesting newsletter sharing recipes. This now gives you first party data. Or Daily Harvest, a guest that I had on the Data Chief podcast, talks about how much data customers are willing to share with them because they use it to make better products. The same is true of Stitch Fix, a lot of these digital natives. So it's understanding what the customer wants, cleaning that data, making it actionable. Historically, customer data is siloed. There is sales data. And then support is separate. So you call a support center, the support center doesn't have visibility into where the customer was sold, how long the customer has even been with you. Looking even at digital interactions versus analog interactions, 
I'm really excited about one of the partners we work with, VoiceBase, because they take these voice and text interactions and allow you to do analytics on it, saying, you know, how many calls were handled angrily or with empathy? How many calls led to a resolution? Or even might there was a language problem. We couldn't understand each other. So all of this gets to customer experience analytics, but I also think it's about sharing that data with customers. Really, um, this gets into data monetization. We had one of our customers in Europe, TPICAP, they talk a lot about how they create data products and share that with their customers. British Telecom is another one that has excellent data products that they share with their customers using ThoughtSpot. Giving customers that ownership and then allow them to make sense of that is definitely a great way to consumerize your data. Now, as, as we talk about this idea of the, six, the, the last trend, which is data expo, the wide inequity and about organizations to drive change, I believe you have been quite vocal about the movement of data for good. So uh, what, what role do you see this movement play in the uh, progress of analytics and AI in the near future? Yeah, so data for good brings together a lot of different concepts. And I do think there's a greater attention being paid now to social issues. And some of it, it can be used related to diversity, inclusion, and equity, but it also can be used to solve tough problems like homelessness how to make sure you have the right food at a particular shelter or enough beds. What are the occupancy rates? One of our customers in the data for good space is related to cancer and allowing oncologists to see what are the trends related to different types of cancer. So there's a wide range of problems that can be solved with data And data for good is where organizations will contribute, whether it's software or expertise or data. So open data may come into play here. Sharing data is important. Does that answer your question or? Yeah, absolutely. Is there any particular organization that doing excellent data for good practice that you would recommend for listeners to check it out? Well, so uh, a lot of tech companies have their own data for good programs. So at ThoughtSpot, we call it ThoughtSpot Together. But then if you look industry-wide, DataKind is one of the largest volunteer organizations. They will set up data dives and work with nonprofits. They also will, you kind of rent out an analyst or a data scientist to work on a particular problem. MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth also contributes to that. They help fund some of the DataKind efforts. Carnegie Mellon has a data science for social good program. Chloe Tsang is the founder of Viz for Social Good. So that program also organizes events, works with nonprofits. Yeah, that's an excellent list of resources. Let me be sure to include them into the show notes. Then to also actively engage with the broader data community, you have been hosting the Data Chief podcast that features interview with some of the most successful data leaders in the industry from doing this conversation you know, over the past few months or so, I guess what are the top three pain points that these data leaders have that you have observed from them? So the top, I love the Data Chief podcast. It's actually, <laughs> it's, does that sound not selfless excellence? But really it's about the guests. They so willingly share their insights. And I just feel like I've been able to 
meet some of the brightest minds in the industry. And yet many of them have such bold visions and yet grapple with some of the similar challenges. One of which is also the CDO role is so difficult because the CDO role is one of a change agent, a connector, a collaborator, bridging the divide and trying to respond to conflicting priorities when it's really about business value, but then somebody will say, no, the old way of working was good or that's too risky. And so driving the organization forward to change, to innovate, to adopt new technologies at a pace that provides business value rather than technology for technology's sake is hard. It's hard, but it's exciting. I think that is one of the biggest challenges. The war on talent, people change management, huge challenges. Mm -hmm. One thing that is not a challenge that I find interesting, I ask everyone, tell me about a failure or a difficult time you didn't think you could get through it or what happened or what did you learn? And maybe it's the profile of the guests we bring on. Nobody, either they don't want to share the spectacular failures or everyone just has the view. No, I learned from this. So it's not a failure. It was an experiment. And now I know what didn't work and it's moving on. Yeah. Interesting. Good luck to turn that question on to you. What is a favorite failure of yours? A favorite failure? Well, none. <laughs> <laughs> More so, like, tr when was I not traumatized? No, I mean, I do think when I have a problem that I encounter, I work that problem from every angle. And when I have exhausted the angles, and in working a problem from an angle, I will rely on others, like, I'm stuck, what do you think of this? Or I'm running out of ideas here. So it's never about solving it on your own. It's about the people and perspectives you bring to bear on a particular problem. Some of the failures, well, I think moving on when I thought I would stay in a role longer, both at Dow and at Gartner, I'm not good at goodbyes. I stay in touch with people. And then I think, did I leave too soon? Or I wish things could have continued longer. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a failure, just I'm not good at letting go. Yeah, making that clean break. Yeah. Now, the Dead Sheep podcast, I think um, it's been 26, 27 episodes thus far, right? Do you plan to keep continuing this conversation in the near future? And what, what are the type of conversation that you plan to continue conduct with, with the podcast? Yeah. So we continue to release new episodes every other week on Wednesdays across multiple channels. And actually, we recently made a change to scale it because I also want to make it interactive. Mm -hmm. So we recently did our very first Data Chief live episode. So it's streamed live both on LinkedIn and on YouTube. People can ask questions real time. And that interactive part and solutioning together, problem solving together, particularly in this digital remote virtual world was an element I wanted to bring to everyone. So I think we will continue that. It will be the first Thursday of each month, two times to cover global time zones one in for my morning Eastern Standard Time and evening to reach people abroad in Japan or Sydney or people working evening. Perfect. Yeah, and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes as well. 
Finally, woman in tech is a topic that I would love to discuss. You have written this article on, on the Talkspot blog, discussing some of the challenges that explain why women of our tech, including factors like the hiring pipeline, bad recruiting, inclusion, and unconscious biases, and uh, being a working parent. Now, if you can condense your 30 plus year of experience navigating this industry, what are your top three pieces of advice that you would give to female data practitioners in the early phase of their careers? So in the early phase of the career, remember that when something happens, it's rarely about you. It's more often about the other person, their own insecurities or their unconscious bias that they don't want to acknowledge that they have. So if somebody slights you, try not to take it personally. It's not about you or your accomplishments or your sense of self-worth. It's about the other person. In that article, you mentioned a couple of organizations that have tackled the hiring pipeline, right? Which is things like C++ and Gun Plus Data and, and Girls Who Code, right? Was there anything that you want to kind of mention about, about them and the work that they're doing? Yeah, some other groups too, women in data, women in big data, women in analytics, they all have a slightly different purpose or role. Some are more about mentoring. So women in data, I serve as a mentor to a couple up and comers, really dynamos in the space. Women in analytics, I contributed an essay to a book that that organization just published, a wonderful collection of essays by other leaders in this space. And women in big data have an angle more about training, bringing new skills, and it's global, much broader, more well-established, I would say. Yeah, fabulous. I'll be sure to include all of them in the show notes so that you can have a chance to take a look at them. Uh, so, Cindy, at this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid-fire questions, and then uh, you can give you know quick answers for the listeners. Okay. Number one, name three people in the business intelligence universe whose work you admire. So this is really hard to limit it to three because I'd like to name at least <laughs> a dozen. I'll start with Joy Bilamwini. If you haven't seen the documentary Coded Bias, have you seen it, James? I mean, I, I, I saw it. James, you got to watch it. It's just such pioneering work, the Algorithmic Justice League And Kathy O'Neill, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction, author that I admire. Kate Strachnia, who launched her own startup, Dedicated, just at the start of the pandemic, I think is very bold. So these people are all younger than me, if I think. So I'm wondering about this. I mean, initially, I also wrote down Ralph Kimball because he just shaped my work early on. But if I think of people recently, I have to go back to the co-founders of ThoughtSpot. So Ajit Singh and Amit Prakash. And I remember one of the early briefings they gave to me was like, okay, are you trying to be an add-on to Tableau or are you trying to compete with Tableau? And I just didn't envision that anyone could seriously disrupt the momentum that Tableau had, and they have defined a new market that others have imitated. And Ajit always says, we are only 2% done. And I see even how much the product has evolved from when I joined to where it is today. And 
when I listen to them and see them whiteboarding, even they have such big, bold ideas. No problem is too big. No problem is too big. And it's very inspiring. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an analytical mindset? Yeah, so that's where one book, because I want the everyday person to be thinking analytically, I'd have to go with Moneyball because everyone loves baseball and it makes it so relevant as part of, you can have gut feel in terms of how to recruit or how to do play calls, or you can have data or have both. And the hard thing to go break traditions, I think is so well captured in Michael Lewis's book. If you want to go a little deeper, then you have to read like Freakonomics from Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. Those are definitely uh, paradigm changing books that allow us to take another perspective at analytics. And then finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the early stage data analysts on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So I have two. One would be, how will you change the world with data? The other would be, because I'm learning the younger generation likes to play this game that I only recently learned, two truths and a lie. And because we can use data to lie, it would be three examples. Tell me what's two truths and a lie with data. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great, <laughs> great prompt to, to put on a tweet. I think I'm going to have to do that, yeah. Well, thanks, Cindy. I really appreciate, you know, spending your time today talking with me and kind of going over tying different threads of your career together from being an, an aspiring writer measuring in English to getting first job at Dark Chemical, extracting data from mainframes to um, going back to business school while being a working parent to running a BI scorecard as an independent analyst firm and teaching at the Data Warehouse Institute, your time at Gartner, building out the measure quadrant alongside critical capabilities. And now your current role at Tosspot as a chief strategy officer, your various ideas on Southwest Excellent Culture, the evolution of the ecosystem for BI tools, different trends and prediction for data tools in 2021, uh, the movement data for good, as well as being a woman in tech. And so I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, you know, read your articles, following on social media, listen to your podcast as they, you know, being more and more interested in, in some of your top leadership that you have. So yes, Cindy, I have a fantastic time today with you yeah. and uh, I hope I have you uh, have a great rest of your week. All right, James, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me as a guest on your show. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.